0: This message was presented at the GYC 2014 conference, at the Cross, in Phoenix, Arizona. For other resources like this, visit us online at www.gycweb.org. All right, let's get started with our second session. We just took a brief break there, and... A little bit of review from just a few minutes of our last session. We started with the question, do you have to be a Seventh-day Adventist to be saved? And we said that, no, you don't have to be a Seventh-day Adventist to be saved. And, and then we asked ourselves, then why be a Seventh-day Adventist at all? And this is the undergirding of why we do evangelism. We're talking about campus evangelism. But if you don't have an understanding of why someone should be an Adventist, if you can be saved just as much being a Baptist as being a Seventh-day Adventist, then then why go through the trouble of giving them Bible studies if they're going to be saved anyway? That, that was the reasoning that we had followed up to this point. And we said that if you don't have to be a Seventh-day Adventist to be saved, then, then why be a Seventh-day Adventist at all? It seems like we're going through a lot of trouble for nothing. We said the answer was no. Um, and then we went through some reasons of why we do what we do, why we do evangelism, and one of them had to do with nature of truth. Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. And a relationship is built upon truth. We also said that truth is necessary for growth. Truth is like the fertilizer that helps us to grow as a Christian, and it's directly proportional. The more you accept truth, the more you grow as a Christian. Now, the last reason is probably the most compelling reason to me of why I have this burning desire to to share the faith, and it has to do with the nature of truth in then times and and um, it's found in Matthew chapter twenty four, verse four. And you remember, Matthew twenty four is the great what theologians call the eschatological chapter. It's just a fancy term. It's the end time chapter. It's kind of like the book of Daniel in in the gospels. And Jesus is talking about end time events. Remember, Jesus went into the temple and then he walked out and he said, there's not gonna be one stone that's gonna be left upon another. He's talking about the destruction of Jerusalem and naturally disciples thought the destruction of Jerusalem would be the end of the world. So they said, what shall be the sign of that coming? When shall these things be in the end of the world? And Jesus answered both questions in the same chapter. Okay? Now, this is the end time chapter, and notice the first things that come out, the first thing that comes out of the mouth of Jesus. He didn't say, oh, look out for the time of trouble. The moon's going to turn to blood, and stars are going to fall. He covers all of that later, but the first thing that comes out of the mouth of Jesus. Now, who's he talking to? Is he talking to Christians or non-Christians? He's talking to Christians, right? Well, the disciples. Okay, I guess you can say they were Christians, but he's, he's concerned about his his church. Okay? And Notice what he says. The first thing that comes out of his mouth, his main concern, he says, watch out that no one, what? Deceives you. All right? So Christ's primary concern for his church, and later on he says the deception is going to be so great that if possible it's going to deceive the whom? The very elect, right? Now, why is Christ so concerned about deception in the end of time? Okay? Now, let me give you an example or just a... uh, Illustration of of the nature of deception. All right, if or the the price of deception. If you believe a lie, let's say in the fifteen hundreds, um, the price of that lie is not very high, but evidently the price of the lie in the end of times is going to be a lot more. Look in Revelation chapter thirteen. Verse 14 and 16, this is end time deception, and he deceives those who dwell on the earth because of the signs which were given to him to perform in the presence of the beast, telling those who dwell on the earth to make an image to the beast who had the wound of the sword and has come to life, and he causes all, small and great, the rich and poor, free free men and slaves, to be given a mark on their right hand or on their forehead." All right, this is talking about the lamb-like beast in Revelation chapter 13. Remember, in Revelation chapter 13, there's two beasts, the sea beast and the land beast. One is the the papacy, the Roman power, the papacy. And the second beast is the United States of America. And these two are going to be the sole superpowers in the end of time. And they're going to enforce something called the mark of the beast. By the way, we're living in an unprecedented time right now where we're seeing prophecy being fulfilled right before your very eyes. I remember when I was in the seminary, there was one article that was put out in the 1970s by one of our more progressive um, progressive uh, Adventist magazines in the 70s. And they were saying, oh, you know, Ellen White's perspective that America is going to be the sole superpower is just, just so impossible because the USSR was at its prime and, and the Cold War. And you read it, I mean, look at it right now, it's, it's prophecy. That five-foot-three woman... Um, Ellen White, was, was right. Okay? Right now you're seeing America's only superpower and the, the moral power in the world is, is the Roman Catholic Church. Okay? Revelation 13 says these two are going to join together and they're going to enforce and they're going to deceive, okay? and this is what Christ was concerned about. He's going to deceive the world to receive the mark of the beast. Okay? So this is the nature of it. Now what is the price for receiving the mark of the beast? Revelation chapter 14. Third angel's message. If any man worship the beast or receive his mark on his forehead or on his hand, he himself shall drink of the wine of the wrath of God. So this is the price of deception in the end of time. You will lose your salvation. That's the price, okay? Now, the nature of salvation is very simple. Once you accept Jesus as your Savior, your name is written in the Lamb's Book of Life. But in the end of time, the price of deception is going to be extremely high. Which means if you're deceived into receiving the mark of the beast, you're going to be what? You're going to be lost. So there's going to be a polarization in the end of time between those that have the mark of the beast and the seal of God. And that polarization is going to be forced by the devil. And this is why Adventists exist. This is it. Revelation chapter 18 verse 4. Then I heard another voice from heaven saying, come out of her my people so that you do not share in her sins so that you do not receive of her plagues. And this, to me, is a very compelling reason to be a Seventh-day Adventist today. Because we're part of that final movement that calls people out of Babylon into his remnant church with the recognition that in the end of time, the price of deception is going to be extremely high. The prophetic context in which we're living makes being an Adventist a compelling a compelling, um, compelling argument. Alright, um, just a, another little tangent here uh, before moving on to some of the practice of, of campus evangelism. Um, some people will say, I apologize for this next slide because it's a little bit jumbled there. I see that something under there. Um, on, on campus ministry or associated with campus ministry some people will say don't be too extreme be, be balanced. Now I hear this a lot um, not only in association with campus ministries, but in association with Adventism in general. And, and we, have, we have these terms that we use. We have moderate, liberal, conservative, right-wing, left-wing, extreme, centrist, fanatic, and then, and then everyone wants to be this, right? Balance, okay? Have you ever heard someone that didn't think they were balanced? This is the irony. Everyone thinks they're balanced, okay? I, I think I'm balanced. Anyone here think they're a fanatic? all right, right-wing extreme or leftist, okay, socialist, Marxist, you know, what, whatever you may call it, everyone's like, well, I'm balanced, okay? It's, it's interesting. And, and, and this is the thing. You travel in Adventism, okay? I've had the privilege of traveling in different pockets of Adventism, and even in America. You travel to different parts of America, and everyone thinks they're balanced. And the funny thing is, I go in certain circles, and I'm a right-wing fanatical extremist, you know, I'm not saying I am, but they, they view me as a right wing fanatical extremist because you believe in the spirit of prophecy. Come on, you know you believe in creation extreme. Like you are, where, where do you come from? And then I go in other circles. I'm a left wing. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? It's so re- like you're left. I mean, um, I won't go into examples, but you know, you know what I mean. You mix all right. Let me. Use, you mix fruits and vegetables. Ah, oh, I mean, leftist. Okay. Um, you eat that. All right. Uh, ketchup. All right. Anyways. Okay. All right. So, left wing. What's what's the matter with you, Dave? You compromiser. Okay. So, so my point is, these labels are very deceiving because it's it's so relative to where you are, and and and, and this is the challenge when you're dealing with secularism. Is that we use language to label, but this is really this really comes from a philosopher by the name of Heigel. Okay. And Hegel came up with this concept. I'm not gonna go into this because it's really just philosophy, but this 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 concept has come into our culture and we use it in Adventism today, okay? And and I want to share with you the dangers of this. Heigel came up with this philosophy that you have thesis and thesis, and then you have synthesis all right so you have one side here left wing right wing synthesis balance all right um actually marxism comes from heigel and uh communism comes from heigel so you have the lower class the upper class and then the classless society, which really doesn't exist, as we've seen. Okay, um, okay. So this, is, so Marxism and communism is is an attempt at, is the political application of Heigling, Heigl's philosophy. Okay, but we apply this today. We have thesis, antithesis, and synthesis, and this is what we do. We go out in society, we go out in our culture, and we say, "Oh, that's the right." This is the left, and you know what? I'm going to be balanced. I'm going to be right, right here. And this is what happens when we approach culture, okay? So this is, what, this is what we do. We have the extreme left, extreme right, and then we have the center. And this is what we, we attempt to do in Adventism today. We look at the extreme right, whatever that may be. Then we look at the extreme left, and we say, you know what? I'm going to be balanced. I'm going to be a centrist. This is what I hear all the time. I want to be a centrist. Now, I'm not saying that being balanced is wrong. I want to be balanced, okay? But this is the approach that we take, okay? So if I'm in California, I look at the extreme right, extreme left, I want to be centrist. If I'm in Michigan, extreme right, extreme left, I want to be centrist. East Coast, extreme right, extreme left, I'm going to be centrist Adventist. Let me ask you this question If you're in Sodom and Gomorrah, what is a centrist? Okay. The extreme right, abstinence. The extreme left, immorality, bestiality. I mean, you can go through the whole thing. Okay, just just all of the immoral things. I mean, that's just crazy. Pedophilia. I go through all the sexual sins. Sodom, Gomorrah. That's the extreme left. Extreme right, left and right, whatever, it doesn't matter. Abstinence. Come on, one partner your whole life, that's extreme. I'm going to be a centrist. Five partners a year, maybe three partners a year, that's balanced, right? Okay, but being balanced in Sodom and Gomorrah is unbiblical, okay? And this is what we need to be careful of. We need to be careful that we're not taking Hegel 's philosophy and, and approaching and using that as our parameter for what is truth and what is balanced. Because we're going to get to the place in human history where being balanced is amoral or immoral, I should say. All right, Because the pendulum is going to be shifted so far off and the moral compass of society is going to be so far off that... That being balanced is still going to be off, just like you can see in Sodom and Gomorrah, all right, so we cannot use this type of mentality to determine where we are at so this is this is the main thing is that when, when it comes to theology, all right there may be a time when being biblically centered that 's where we want to be biblically centered, okay, let the labels fall there where there now there may be a time when you 're in a certain place where being centered on the word biblically centered is right in the middle between the extreme and the left. That may happen. All right? But it may also happen that when you're biblically centered, you're a leftist. Okay? Because that's the way culture is. But also, being centered on the word, may, you may be viewed as extreme right. So don't let society determine what balance may be. All right, That's all relative. And this is a statement from Ellen White that, that really speaks to this issue. Review and Herald When we reach the standard that the Lord would have us reach, worldlings will regard Seventh-day Adventists as odd, singular, and straight-laced extremists. Let me read that again. When we reach the standard that the Lord would have us reach, worldlings will regard Seventh-day Adventists as odd, singular, and straight-laced extremists. Now, I'm not saying that we should go out there and look all crazy just to be an extremist, but the point is that the world's Moral compass is going to be so skewed that they're going to look at Seventh-day Adventists and say, "Like, look, you guys are, you guys are just way out there." Okay, and we should not let that determine where we stand as Christians. So, be centered, be balanced, be biblical, but let the labels fall where they are, and let's not, let's not let this uh, keep us keep us from. Um, Standing standing for truth. All right, Great Controversy 595, we've, we've read this many times. But the, but God would have a people upon the earth to maintain the Bible and the Bible only as the standard of all doctrines and the basis of all reforms, the opinions of learned men, the deductions of signs, the creeds and decisions of ecclesiastical councils, as numerous and discordant as are the churches which they represent, the voice of the majority, not one nor all of these should be regarded as evidence for or against any point of religious faith before accepting any doctrine or precept We should demand a plain, thus saith the Lord, in its support. Okay, so this is the foundation of campus ministries. It should be a Bible based revival movement in which every student is a missionary. All right, so we're talking a little bit about the philosophy behind campus ministry, it needs to be Bible based. Needs to be a revival movement in which every student is a missionary. So the question is all right, David, you say we should be biblical, biblically balanced. How do we stay biblically balanced? And this is something that really has been lost, I think, uh, as far as a practical way of applying the sanctuary. And I really believe it's the sanctuary that keeps us biblically balanced. Psalm 77, verse 13 Your way, O God, is in the sanctuary. Now, let me, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this, but I believe that because we're not doing theology through the sanctuary, using the sanctuary as a hermeneutical interpretive key, that we have a lot of the problems that we have today in Adventism in regards to something as rudimentary and fundamental as the gospel. Um, I I just bought a book. Uh, It's surprising that I just bought it because it's been out for a number of years. Back in 1994, there was a book published by an Adventist author, and it's called Who's Got the Truth? Okay. And on the cover of it, it has four prominent Adventist thought leaders. I'm not going to name their names, but if I were to name them, you know who they are. Four. All of them have a different version of the gospel. This is in the church today. And and his first chapter begins with the words, It's so confusing. So it's something as fundamental as the gospel, something as rudimentary as how someone is saved, in Adventism today there is a plethora of theories. At least five, he said, whether you believe in forensic justification, the moral influence theory, or an evangelical version of the gospel, there's, there's so many diff- different viewpoints about the gospel, and so we're not even in agreement in the church about how you are saved, okay? So there's, there's this whole thing, and, and um, I really believe that the key is in the sanctuary. The subject of the sanctuary was the key which unlocked the movement of the great disappointment of 1844. It opened to view a complete system of truth connected and harmonious, showing that God's hand had directed the great Advent movement, revealing that the present duty as it brought to light the position and work of his people. Let me illustrate this very quickly, all right? So you have the sanctuary here, okay? Uh, There's three compartments in the sanctuary, the courtyard, the holy place, most holy place. All right, these articles of furniture here. This is not a seminar in the sanctuary, but I just want to illustrate this point. All right, where were Adam and Eve in Edenic perfection before sin? Okay, they were right here, right? Face-to-face communion with God, open communion with God, okay? That's where Adam and Eve were, most holy place. As a result of sin, we ended up here, right? Okay, so Adam and Eve were here. We ended up here. Now the sanctuary is like a kindergarten model in which God illustrates the plan of salvation of how God will bring us back. That's the sanctuary. So God wants to bring us back here. Adam and Eve were here, we were put out here, and so we go into the courtyard through Jesus, the door. This is where The lamb is slain. The cross. This can illustrate baptism. This is the first phase. So God brings us back to him in three different phases. The courtyard. This is justification. Forgiveness. Holy place experience. Sanctification. Okay. Most holy place experience. Glorification. The issue today is that Because we have lost using the sanctuary as an interpretive key for the gospel, we have a plethora of theories today. Now, I'm not saying that we don't believe in the sanctuary as a distinctive doctrine. We do. But there's a difference between using it as our key for the gospel and using it as a, or believing it as a distinctive doctrine. Okay, Now, let me share with you, where are the evangelicals camped out? Evangelicals are here. You know, I studied systematic theology for my master's degree. I studied Luther. He's got a lot of beautiful things. But you know one book that he hated? Book of James. Okay, why is that? Because he centered his whole theology in the courtyard. His whole theology was in the courtyard, all right? Centered in on justification. Now I affirm the beauty of justification okay it's foundational the whole sanctuary wouldn't have been possible if it wasn't for the lamp so this is the whole courtyard experience centers it on justification okay where are catholics catholics are here okay sanctification all right meritorious works salvation by works through the seven sacraments okay that's that's where that's where catholics are they center their theology on working their way to heaven and I really believe that a lot of Catholics haven't experienced the beauty of justification. That's why Luther's statement was so profound, the, the realization that just shall live by faith. So evangelicals, Catholics here. John Wesley came along and he said, you know what? Let's do a synthesis now in a positive way, okay? Let's do a synthesis. He said, look, we need both. We need the courtyard and we need the holy place. Justification and sanctification, both of them. Both of them are by faith. Righteousness by faith. In you, for you. That's what John Wesley did. Okay? You know what the contribution of Adventism is? Adventism, we said, guess what? We need the whole thing. That is the unique contribution of Adventism. We said, look, we affirm the courtyard. We affirm the holy place. But we affirm the most holy place experience as well. That is the contribution of Adventism. That is the revolution of Adventism in which we affirm every part of the sanctuary. Evangelicals, they give you a 66% discount on the sanctuary. They cut out two compartments. Same with Catholics. Wesley, a third, a third discount. Adventists, we want the whole thing. And when you do theology through the sanctuary, it gives balance to your gospel. You know, we have today, we have Catholic Adventists. We do. I'm not saying that they are Catholic in theology, but they're Catholic in their understanding of the gospel. They try to work their way to heaven through Adventist sacraments, the sacrament of veganism. Okay, now I'm a vegan. Okay, I try to be. It's hard when you travel, but I'm a vegan at home, all right? <laughs> but the difference is I don't try to be, I don't, I don't practice veganism as a sacrament for salvation, okay? I do it because it makes me feel better, so it clears my mind It helps me in my health, okay? There's a difference between practicing lifestyle for the benefit of having God communicate with you more clearly because God communicates through your mind and practicing veganism as a means of salvation. Okay, I've been in circles, I'm not going to name names, but I've been in circles where they see cheese on your plate. I mean, it's a cardinal sin, okay? And and your salvation is like, ooh, you're kind of hanging in the balance there because, you know, Pastor Shin had some... Had some cheating. All right. Anyways, okay, so you get the picture. Or I've been encircled. Or, 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 or salvation through the sacrament of dress reform. Okay? I believe in modesty, okay? But I don't believe that you should dress modestly because it earns you points with God so that you are entered into the kingdom. You're not going to stand at the pearly gates and be like, God says, oh, are you vegan? You dress reform? All right, you got it, man. Come on in. That's not the way it works, okay? Now, I'm not... I'm not denying the reality of, of modesty, or, or health, or whatever it may be, but, but we have Adventists that are doing holy place theology, okay, and, and basically they're a Catholic version of Adventism. We have some Adventists today, and this is where I believe the majority of Adventists have gone today, who are evangelical Seventh-day Adventists, It's the reduction of Adventism to the courtyard, right here. Sabbath-keeping evangelicals. Um, And this part of sanctification is, is really marginalized. I find that these individuals have been burned by legalism, and they are reacting to legalism, and so they are evangelical in their thinking. But if you take away the sanctuary and the most holy place investigative judgment, if you take that out, you really have no reason to be a Seventh-day Adventist because the whole Seventh-day Adventist movement is predicated on the notion that we are living in a time of judgment, okay, which is connected with the holy place. So this is, this is an important thing. I, I, I really believe that if, if we don't have an understanding of our own identity it takes the heart out of when we try to do evangelism, when we try to reach people. If you don't have an understanding of what differentiates us from Catholics, from evangelicals, from every other denomination, of why you're a Seventh-day Adventist, if you're not doing theology from the standpoint of the sanctuary, it really takes out the heart of who we are. Now, this is from one of my major professors at the seminary. He's retired now. His name is Fernando Canelli, And uh, he says this statement at the end of one of his articles. By the way, if you, you want to read a a very um, profound article. It's by Fernando Canale. It's called The Adventist Mind. It's in Perspectives Digest. You can read it online. And this is his, one of his closing statements in that article. It says, In a time when the Protestant leaders are going back to Rome, this is what's, what's happening today, Adventist leaders, administrators, pastors, and scholars, and I would add lay, lay people, should go back to Scripture and using the sanctuary as the hermeneutical key to understand the complete and harmonious system of biblical truth, so this is where he is calling us to go back to—is go back to the sanctuary. All right, so let's move on. So that's some of the philosophy. Let's get to some of the practice. So we're gonna hit practice uh, right now, and then and then at our two o'clock session um, about about campus ministries. All right, so let me switch things here really quickly. All right, so let's talk about practice. We talked about philosophy. We're talking about campus ministries. And this not only applies to campus ministries, but applies to um, reaching out to individuals in general. So turn with me in your Bibles to Mark chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. I just want to illustrate this point very quickly when we talk about, about reaching people on a personal basis. So our first session, we talked about the why. Now we're going to talk about the what. We talked about the philosophy. Now we're going to talk about the method. Uh, and I thought it important for us to, to talk about the, the why, why we are a Seventh-day Adventist, so that we can have some motivation and some compelling rationale and reason to, to share the truth with others. Now we're going to talk a little bit about the practice, the what, And this is a fascinating story in Mark chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. I'm going to read it through quickly in the New King James Version. You can follow along in whatever version you have there. And again, he entered Capernaum after some days, and it was heard that he was in the house. Immediately, many gathered together. There were no longer room to receive them, not even near the door. And he preached the word to them. Then he came to them, bringing a paralytic who was carried by four men. So this is the scene. Jesus is preaching in a house, and there is someone that is incapacitated. He's a paralytic. And the only way that he could come to Jesus was through his friends. Okay, He had to be carried in on a stretcher. And verse 4, they could not come near him because of the crowd. They uncovered the roof where he was so that they had broken through. They let down the bed on which the paralytic was lying. Now, this is a simple story, simple illustration. Uh, the, The paralytic was physically incapacitated he could not come to jesus on his own the only connection the only way that he can come to jesus was through whom his friends his friends were the only means the only connection to jesus he had to be carried in he was physically incapacitated all right so the the application we could arrive at is that there are some people out there that are spiritually incapacitated and the only way they can come to jesus is you friends they were willing to tear down a roof to bring their friend to Jesus, and the question I have to ask to you is, what are you willing to do to bring your friend to Jesus? All right, you may be the only Jesus they ever know, all right? So this, this, this is a, a fascinating, fasc, what are you willing to do to bring your friend to Jesus? And so I'm going to talk a little bit about friendship evangelism, and this is a quote from gospel workers. We've heard this uh, perhaps before. And Ellen White makes this statement, Christ's method alone will give true success in reaching the people. The Savior mingled with men as one who desired their good. He showed his sympathy for them, ministered to their needs, and won their confidence. Then he bade them, follow me. So you can see the process that Jesus followed. And Ellen White says that, look, this is the only method that we can follow in reaching people. This is the only method of evangelism that we can follow. Mingle with them, show our sympathy for them, minister to their needs, win their confidence, and then bade them follow me. Evangelism is kind of like a funnel, okay? Uh, This is like an oil funnel here. And at the top of the funnel are some of the activities that... Are um, how could I say uh, these are these are activities like uh, socials, um, small groups, cooking schools, um, smoke, stop smoking programs. All right, um, social evangelism type of things. In order to be a, a Seventh Day Adventist, there's uh, the bottom of the funnel. There, there's only two ways to become a Seventh Day Adventist. You know that? Bible studies or prophecy seminars, which is really a public Bible study. That's, that's the only way that someone becomes a, a Seventh-day Adventist. Okay? So that is the bottom of the funnel here. Okay, predicated on the notion that they've accepted Christ. Okay, but, but to become a Seventh-day Adventist in name, they have to go through the funnel of, of Bible studies. Now, the top of the funnel is important because it's the entry for them to go into bible studies and there's a balance to this some people get so involved at the top of the funnel and guess where people want to stay where's the comfortable place the top right you know glow track that's that's up here okay i mean how hard is it to leave a glow track all right just okay th- th- and this is where this is where people love to stay up here okay and that's where the majority of our church likes to stay uh, if if you want to get someone's blood pressure going, especially in our congregation, I get up front and say, "Oh, this afternoon we're going door to door." And a witness, and it's just you can just see the go up. You know, it, it's and this is not something that they, they really like to do. They're like, "Oh, let, let's let's do something softer." Now we do need this, but we need to recognize we need this as well. Now you're not going to get Bible studies and prophecy seminars if you're not doing this. So this is this is the way that evangelism works. At some point. You're going to have to get that person into personal Bible studies, all right? Um, That is where you have to lead them. But it means that to get them to that point, you need to be uh, a, a winsome witness, okay? You need to be someone that is likable. Now, some people have a challenge making friends, Okay, there's really an art to it, and, uh, you know, one of the things that I had to learn very quickly, uh, it just happened by circumstance, is that I ended up going to um, 13 different schools. Uh, it's not because I got kicked out, but uh, I ended up going to 13 different schools, and you know, you know the thing that's really socially traumatizing for a young person you pull them out of their social circles, especially when you're like in sixth grade. I mean, it's traumatic. I mean, you develop these friends. I mean, my wife is quite different. She went to the same school with the same group of people for 12 years. And I'm just like so foreign to me. I mean, she knew these people since kindergarten all the way through. And they're in North Dakota, you know. And so it, it, it's just, but for me, it's like I was pulled out from an inner city school, to a rich prep school where people were making six, you know, parents, and they had clothes that I was just like, oh, my. I mean, like, walking in like they're out of GQ magazine, you know, and, and all these things, and I'm, so, and, and then I went to this country school, then I went to self-supporting school, which was different, too, and public school, all these different schools, and so it's crazy, and, and you're dropped into these social circles, and I was like, you know what, I'm going to be very, very lonely unless I figure out how do I make friends? Okay? And, and sometimes it's easy and sometimes it's not. And as Christians, we should be masters of making friends. Okay? We should be masters of, we should be conversationalist masters. This is where it really begins. And that's the top of the funnel. We need the top of the funnel. There's an art to the top of the funnel. There's a science to it. And Christ mastered that method. Okay, you need to be a likable person, all right? And, uh, you know, I, I canvassed for a number of years, and there's just a science to connecting with somebody, and you need to do it very quickly, okay? And I learned the hard way, because, you know, especially when you get up toward the Northeast, I, I noticed the closer I got to Boston, the, my, my time that I had at the door became, like, quantificatively, like, less. In the South, it's, like, just slow. Come on in. And I'm like, you don't know me, and i and they're like, we don't care. Come in, and I'm like, oh, okay, because I mean, you walk in someone's door and they don't know you, it's just in the, especially in the south, and, and so I just walk in. But in New Jersey, closer to Boston, it's like, what do you want? And then and then as soon as I'm about to say, it, the the door is already shutting, and so you 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 got to be quick. And they say, I'm all set, you know, and I'd be like, whoa, this is not the south. This is crazy, and so so I have to do some. Just quick things. This woman walked up to the door with a dog. And I'd just be like, all right, make friends, make friends. Oh, what kind of dog is that? You know? You know, okay. What kind of dog is that? And, and she's like, oh, it's a golden retriever puppy. And I'm like, oh, great. I love dogs. Now, you can't lie. I love dogs, all right? And, then, and I just talk about the dog. And it was crazy. At the end, she said, oh, now, what are you doing? What are you doing? I said, I'm selling some books, you know. And she said, I'll buy one. I was like, Wow. You know, and and I walked in this one garage. This guy was working on some things, and uh, he was doing carpentry. I don't know a thing about carpentry. And I said, man, I just followed him around like a little puppy. And I was just like, you know, what are you doing here? And what are you doing? He was telling me about all these projects. And at the end, he said, you know what? I'll buy a book. I'll buy a book just because you take an interest in that individual. So there's a real science to that. Um, There's a real way of witnessing to individuals. I'm going to go through these quotes very quickly. Let those who desire to work for God begin at home, in their own household, in their neighborhoods, among their own friends. Here they will find a favorably missionary field. This home missionary work is a test, revealing the ability or inability for service in a wider field. Um, I apologize if I have to move through these quickly. Personal, individual effort, interest for your friends and neighbors will accomplish more than can be estimated. It is want for this kind of labor that souls for whom Christ died are Perishing. There are those who need the ministration of loving Christian hearts. Many have gone down to ruin who might have been saved if common men and women had put forth personal effort for them. We should feel it our special duty to work for those living in our neighborhood. Studied how you can best help those who take no interest in religious things as you visit your friends and neighbors, show an interest in their spiritual as well as their temporal welfare, speak to them of Christ as a pardoning Savior. All right, so we know this: friendship evangelism breaks down prejudice, uh, bridges the gap between the known and the unknown. Friendship leads people into the church and helps them to stay. We we all know the principle of friendship evangelism. Um, I'm going to move very quickly through this because I want to get to the heart of today. um, Some of the things. Um, Okay, so these are just some basic common sense things. uh, how to be a friend, <laughs> I mean, this is just so, um, but it, it's good, uh, friends, friends are good listeners, I, I believe that Christ was a good listener, and, uh, you know, I'm a pastor, and you, you'll be surprised when, when parishioners bring a problem to me, um, and I have no specialty in counseling, but if you just listen, um, especially for those of you that are married, you know, it's, it's incredible because, guys, we're always trying to solve things. You know, I'm like, all right, I learned this the hard way because my wife would bring a problem, and I took, I'd be thinking all, to try this, all the solutions, and, and uh, you know, I would just listen. At the end, she'd be like, oh, thank you. I feel so much better, you know, and, and just that was it. No solution, just, just to listen, okay, because what you're doing is, is you're giving the person psychological air, emotional air, all right, and just, just to be heard and understood, um, I, I heard this statement by someone that says, if you want to be successful in life, one of the things he says is be a good listener. And listening to thoughts and feelings. Because we live in a culture today where people are just not listening to each other. Uh, what we normally do is when someone's talking to us, we're thinking of what to say. Okay? But they said, look, seek first, first to understand, then be understood. That's what one person said. But you before... Thinking of what you need to say, just absorb what the person is saying, thinking, and feeling, okay? And when you do that, it really presents an opportunity for you to minister. By listening, you are ministering to the other person because they're, they're, they're in a context where no one is listening to them, okay? And you show up, and you hear and understand what they are saying, and there's something called reflective listening, where you hear the person and you you repeat to them what you understand they are thinking and feeling, you know now it doesn't have to be comical you know i used to I used to always naturally just repeat the other person is saying, but you can get, don't don't quite do that. they say "You're tired and I'd be like, "Oh, you're tired." you know, oh, you're hungry, you're hungry, aren't you, you know, uh, but, uh, but, you know, that's an exaggeration of that, but I'm not, but, but you get the point, is that you, you're understanding, and you're processing what that, what that person is doing, I actually bought a book on listening, and it's just been phenomenal to, through ministry, and how you can minister to someone, and they just say, you know, after you listen to that, they just say, thank you, thank you, all right, um, anyways, good listeners, listen with their eyes, okay, um, the last thing you want to do, is This this is a cue. When someone's talking to you and you look away, um, have you ever had someone do that to you before? You're talking to them, and, the, and then they just... I'm not talking about the glance away, okay? But just stare away. Um, that communicates a lot, okay? It shows them you don't care. They're not important. Just look away. I'm not, I'm not saying that you should, like, you know... I mean, you freak them out. But, but, but typically what you do is you make eye contact, okay? Just keep, you know, anyways, you know this, okay? All right, good listeners, events, uh, advice, uh, dispense advice sparingly. Um, good listeners never break confidence. Uh, good listeners complete the loop. Uh, good listeners show gratitude. All right, so these are all uh, fundamental things for that. So this is, this is how to be a winsome witness wherever you're at. Um, to really uh, be a good listener is, is at the top of that funnel. And it's an important uh, part because we are all taught how to communicate, but I don't think people are taught how to listen. And this is just some, some practical practical things. All right. Um, oh, sorry. Complete the loop is um, you got to provide some, some feedback all right whether it's like grunting or you know I'm not, I'm not saying grunting but but you ever on the phone with somebody and it's just like dead silent on the other end you're just talking and talking and you're like and hey, what do you do hello are you there <laughs> right right so so along the line you're just like yeah uh-huh i see you know that's 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 providing feedback to them but as if you're just like yeah, it's, it's, it's awkward, all right? You, you, you killed it, okay? So if you're like, yeah, I see that. Oh, I can see that. You know, I can just Now, even if you don't agree with what, you can say like, look, I, you know, I understand. I understand, okay? That's, that's an important part. And, and look, for those of you that are married or, or want to be married, look, this is a skill, especially guys, that you cannot underestimate, all right, in your marriage all right, I've had to learn you know what is a common complaint among wives, my husband never listens to me. Okay? My husband never listens to me. And that's that's something that you want to or or even parents with children, okay? How many times when kids are talking to their parents the dad's watching TV or a newspaper, you know, looking at a newspaper or something, not giving them undivided attention, all right? And and listening is really a form of love that you offer to the other person because everyone this is the thing. No one wants, I, I don't believe everyone wants to be in total agreement with everybody, okay? But everyone wants to be understood. There's a difference. And when you listen, you, you're understanding. All right, so here's some things about the science of being a friend, okay? Um, uh, be cautious with criticism, allow time for solitude. Now, this is an important thing. Allow time for solitude. Encourage other relationships. Um, th- those two are important because um, when, when you're in a friendship with someone, the friendship is in a dynamic flux. Okay? There's times when you and your friends are go- getting, spending more time, getting closer, and then there's some times when you need a break. You move apart and you move together. And this is the natural ebb and flow of friendships. And the thing to do as a friend, all right, this is just in general, not just talking about friendship evangelism, but in friendships in general. If you notice the other person is moving away from you for a little bit, let him go. Okay? Let him go. Look, if the bird doesn't come back, it was never yours to start with in the first place. Okay? So let it let him go. All right. So, this is the art of friends. And this is what I learned is when you have a close friend and they're like, oh, man, I've had a little bit too much time with David. Oh, my. He's getting on my nerves a little bit. Let, let me, I don't want to break up the friendship, but let me give some time. So, they go off a little bit, hang out with someone a little, a little bit. But you know what some people do? When the person is moving away, they do this Where have you been? why are you talking to that person? Text them. Where are you right now? Uh, you, know, you, know, you know what we do when they do that? It's like you feel like that person is stalking you, okay? And, and, and when you do that, that person, it, it, it repels them further away, okay? So the dynamic of friendship is, is freedom, that that's that's the science of friendship. So so if you notice that someone is like taking some space away from you, this is in evangelism as well. They're taking some space. They want a breather, okay? Don't be like you know the Gestapo. It's like well, where have you been? You have not talked to me in two you know whatever. Ah, you know. It's like that person's gonna be like, whoa, this guy's just clingy. Have you heard that before? Clingy, just ugh. You know, and that's not what you want to do, okay? And I'm not saying we shouldn't seek the person out. Now, if they're running away from conviction, that's different, okay? But if they're taking a break from you, let them take a break. They'll come back, okay? They'll come back. That's, that's, the, that's the thing. So that's, that's one important science of, of friendship evangelism. Another thing is, remember that friendships are like a bank account. I learned this from one of my mentors. okay. It's like a bank account. You're either making deposits or you're making a withdrawal. Okay? And we we need to recognize this. You, you ever had a friend that the only time they called you was when they wanted something, right? How do you feel about that person? Uh, not very good, right? And, and so you, you need to recognize this, is that people that have invested in that relationship, and the bank account is full, okay, you can mess up, and guess what, the bank account is so full that when you make a withdrawal, it's okay, your relationship is fine, but if you've invested nothing in that relationship, and you lose their pencil, okay, it's like a two-cent withdrawal, but guess what, that bank bank account is at zero, that person is like, how could you lose, you know what I mean, it's just like, It's, it's, it's your relationship is on rocky, rocky ground. And, and, you know, marriage is the same way as well. You're constantly making withdrawal, withdrawal, withdrawals. And, and, you know, and, and, and the person just ends up leaving over, you know, you didn't put away your socks, but, but the reality is that person was, that, that relationship was bankrupt. Okay. So that's what you need to recognize in, in your friendships, in ministering to other individuals, that element of, of deposits is, is an important thing. So deposits, courtesy, kindness, um, investing time. Um, these are all things you can, you can think of other elements for, for, um, for the bank account principle as well. Um, and then, and then you have withdrawals, not listening. Um, these are withdrawals you should never make, but, um, overreacting, ignoring a person, gossip. Okay. So these are all common sense types of types of elements for, for friendship evangelism as well. All right, so let's move on very quickly. I just have a few other um, things. Um, very quickly, understanding of the person, uh, is depo- what, what a deposit is for that individual, attention to little things, kindnesses, courtesies, keeping commitments or promises. These are all, uh, de- be, be loyal to those who are not present. This is important. Um, If you're talking with somebody and you are criticizing someone that is not present, it actually decreases your integrity. Because I always worry if I'm talking with someone and they're always talking bad about somebody else. Okay, That is always a subject of the conversation. you know what that does for me? But the thing is, you might have a moment where you have a closeness because you're like, oh, this person is sharing this information about this person, how they don't like them, and how they're criticizing, going through the whole litany of things. But you know what? In the back of my mind, I'm starting to worry is because I know that it's just a matter of time before I am the subject of their conversation. It, it actually decreases your integrity. And so the way to increase your integrity is, hey, don't talk bad about someone that's not present. Okay, or better yet, is defend someone that's not present. Okay, you may, it may be a little bit weird in the beginning, but that person will know that, look, they can trust you because if the conditions are reversed, you'll do the same thing for them. Integrity is important. And I know we all get into it. We talk about someone that's not present, but it destroys the foundation of friendship because in the back of my mind, they, they know, look, I can't trust you. I can't trust you. Okay, apologize sincerely when you make a mistake. All right, um, let's see here. Okay, so we'll wrap things up right there. This afternoon, we have another seminar at 2 o'clock, and um, this seminar is going to be on uh, watching for conviction and gaining decisions. Um, I thought those other topics I wanted to present, but this is probably the most difficult one it is to teach to my elders, um, because everyone likes to give Bible studies, but you know where the challenge is? Getting the decision, all right? And so I'm going to go into the heart of some of the, the process and the principles of how to get a decision from someone, um, and uh, I'll be sharing some experiences with you as well, the Chinese student that we, that we brought to a decision this year. Just in a nutshell, we spent several hours um, with this individual, um, leading them to a decision. And the most powerful decision that you can lead someone to is to have them accept Jesus as their Savior. That's that's the ground that can lead, that that this is the foundation for, for the rest of the decisions that come along the way. And so we'll be going through the practice of that. Two o'clock this afternoon. Thank you so much for your time and uh, attention. Let's bow our heads together as we pray. Father in heaven, we thank you uh, for for Jesus and that you were uh, truly a friend of sinners that you had master, you you were the master teacher of of how to win souls and we just want to be better equipped to be friends with individuals to lead them to the foot of the cross and I pray for every person here that you would use us lord for your glory for your honor and for your kingdom bless us now in Jesus name amen Amen. God bless you. Thank you so much for your time. This message was recorded at the GYC 2014 conference at The Cross in Phoenix, Arizona. GYC, a supporting ministry of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, seeks to inspire young people to be Bible-based, Christ-centered, and soul-winning Christians. To download or purchase other resources like this, visit us online at www dot gycweb.org.